support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Rescue Seaton and Crane drove the Skylark in the direction indicated by the unwavering object compass with the greatest acceleration they could stand, each man taking a twelve-hour watch at the instrument board. Now, indeed, did the Skylark justify the faith of her builders, and the two inventors, with an exultant certainty of their success, flew out beyond man's wildest imaginings. Had it not been for the haunting fear of Dorothy's safety, the journey would have been one of pure triumph, and even that anxiety did not prevent a profound joy in the enterprise. If that misguided mutt thinks he could pull off a stunt like that and get away with it, he's got another think coming, asserted Seaton, after making a reading on the other car after several days of flight. He went off half-cocked this time for sure, and we've got him foul. We'd better put on some negative pretty soon, hadn't we, Mart? Only a little over a hundred light-years now. Crane nodded agreement, and Seaton continued. It'll take as long to stop, of course, as it has taken to get out here. And if we ram them, good night. Let's figure it out as nearly as we can. They calculated their own speed and that of the other vessel, as shown by the various readings taken, and applied just enough negative acceleration to slow the Skylark down to the speed of the other space car when they should come up with it. They smiled at each other in recognition of the perfect working of the mechanism when the huge vessel had spun with a sickening lurch through a complete half-circle the instant the power was reversed. Each knew that they were actually traveling in a direction that to them seemed down, but with a constantly diminishing velocity, even though they seemed to be still going up with an increasing speed. Until nearly the end of the calculated time, the two took turns as before, but as the time of the meeting drew near, both men were on the alert, taking readings on the object compass every few minutes. Finally, Crane announced, We're almost on them, Dick. They are so close that it is almost impossible to time the needle. Less than 10,000 miles. Seaton gradually increased the retarding force until the needle showed that they were very close to the other vessel and maintaining a constant distance from it. He then shut off the power, and both men hurried to the bottom window to search for the fleeing ship 
with her powerful night glasses. They looked at each other in amazement as they felt themselves falling almost directly downward with an astounding acceleration. "'What do you make of it, Dick?' asked Crane calmly as he brought his glasses to his eyes and stared out into the black heavens, studded with multitudes of brilliant and unfamiliar stars. "'I don't make it at all, Mart. By the feel, I should say we are falling towards something that would make our Earth look like a pinhead. I remember now that I noticed that the bus was getting a little out of plumb with the bar all this last watch. I didn't pay much attention to it, as I couldn't see anything out of the way. Nothing but a sun could be big enough to raise all this disturbance, and I can't see any close enough to be afraid of. Can you? No, and I cannot see the steel space car, either. Look sharp. Of course. Seaton continued to argue as he peered out into the night. It is theoretically possible that a heavenly body can exist large enough so that it could exert even this much force and still appear no larger than an ordinary star. But I don't believe it is probable. Give me three or four minutes of visual angle, and I'll believe anything. But none of these stars are big enough to have any visual angle at all. Furthermore, there is at least half a degree of visual angle, broke in his friend intensely, just to the left of that constellation that looks so much like a question mark. It's not bright, but dark, like a very dark moon, barely perceptible. Seaton pointed his glass eagerly in the direction indicated. Great cat, he ejaculated. I'll say that's some moon. Wouldn't that rattle your slats? And there's Duquesne's bus, too, on the right edge. Get it? As they stood up, Seaton's mood turned to one of deadly earnestness, and a grave look came over Crane's face as the seriousness of their situation dawned upon them. Trained mathematicians both, they knew instantly that the unknown world was of inconceivable mass, and that their chance of escape was none too good, even should they abandon the other craft to its fate. Seaton stared at Crane, his fists clenched and drops of perspiration standing on his forehead. Suddenly, with agony in his eyes and in his voice, he spoke. Mighty slim chance of getting away if we go through with it, old man. Hate like the devil. Have no right to ask you to throw yourself away, too. Enough of that, Dick. You had nothing to do with my coming. You could not have kept me away. We will see it through. Their hands met in a fierce clasp, broken by Seaton, as he jumped to the levers with an intense, Well, let's get busy. In a few minutes they had reduced the distance until they could plainly see the other vessel, a small black circle against the faintly luminous disk. As it leaped into clear relief in the beam of his powerful searchlight, Seaton focused the great attractor upon the fugitive car and threw in the lever which released the full force of that mighty magnet, while Crane attracted the attention of the vessel's occupants by means of a momentary burst of solid machine-gun bullets, which he knew would glance harmlessly off the steel hull. After an interminable silence, Duquesne drew himself out of his seat. He took a long inhalation, deposited the butt of his cigarette carefully in his ashtray, and made his way to his room. He returned with three heavy fur suits provided with air helmets, 
two of which he handed to the girls, who were huddled in a seat with their arms around each other. These suits were the armor designed by Crane for use in exploring the vacuum and the intense cold of dead worlds. Airtight, braced with fine steel netting, and supplied with air at normal pressure from small tanks by automatic valves, they made their wares independent of surrounding conditions of pressure and temperature. The next thing to do, Duquesne stated calmly, is to get the copper off the outside of the ship. That is the last resort, as it robs us of our only safeguard against meteorites. But this is the time for last resort measures. I'm going after that copper. Put these suits on, as our air will leave as soon as I open the door. And practically an absolute vacuum, an equally absolute zero, will come in. As he spoke, the ship was enveloped in a blinding glare, and they were thrown flat as the vessel slowed down in its terrific fall. The thought flashed across Duquesne's mind that they had already entered the atmosphere of the monster globe and were being slowed down and set afire by its friction. But he dismissed it as quickly as it had come. The light in that case would be the green of copper, not this bluish white. His next thought was that there had been a collision of meteors in the neighborhood and that their retardation was due to the outer coating. While these thoughts were flickering through his mind, they heard an insistent metallic tapping, which Duquesne recognized instantly. A machine gun, he blurted in amazement. How in? It's Dick, screamed Dorothy with flashing eyes. He's found us just as I knew he would. You couldn't beat Dick and Martin in a thousand years. The tension under which they had been laboring so long suddenly released. The two girls locked their arms around each other in a half-hysterical outburst of relief. Margaret's meaningless words and Dorothy's incoherent praise of her lover and Crane mingled with their racking sobs as each fought to recover self-possession. Duquesne had instantly mounted to the upper window. Throwing back the cover, he flashed his torch rapidly. The glare of the searchlight was snuffed out, and he saw a flashlight spell out in dots and dashes. Can you read Morris? Yes, he signaled back. Power gone, drifting into. We know it. Will you resist? No. Have you fur pressure suits? Yes. Put them on. Shut off your outer coating. We'll touch so your upper door against our lower. Open. Transfer. Quick. Okay. Hastily returning to the main compartment, he briefly informed the girls as to what had happened. All three donned the suits and stationed themselves at the upper opening. Rapidly, but with unerring precision, the two ships were brought into place and held together by the attractor. As the doors were opened, there was a screaming hiss as the air of the vessels escaped through the narrow crack between them. The passengers saw the moisture in the air turn into snow and saw the air itself first liquefy and then freeze into a solid coating upon the metal around the orifice at the touch of the frightful cold outside. The absolute zero of interstellar space, about 460 degrees below zero in the everyday scale of temperature. The moisture of their breath condensed upon the inside of the double glasses of their helmets, rendering sight useless. Dorothy pushed the other girl ahead of her, Duquesne seized her 
and tossed her lightly through the doorway in such a manner that she would not touch the metal, which would have frozen instantly anything coming into contact with it. Seaton was waiting. Feeling a woman's slender form in his arms, he crushed her to him in a mighty embrace, and was astonished to feel a movement of resistance and to hear a strange, girlish voice cry out, "'Don't! It's me! Dorothy's next!' Releasing her abruptly, he passed her on to Martin and turned just in time to catch his sweetheart, who, knowing that he would be there and recognizing his powerful arms at the first touch, returned his embrace with a fierce intensity which even he had never suspected that she could exert. They stood motionless, locked in each other's arms, while Duquesne dove through the opening and snapped the door shut behind him. The air pressure and temperature back to normal, the cumbersome suits were hastily removed, and Seaton's lips met Dorothy's in a long, clinging caress. Duquesne's cold, incisive voice broke the silence. Every second counts. I would suggest that we go somewhere. Just a minute, snapped Crane. Dick, what shall we do with this murderer? Seaton had forgotten Duquesne utterly in the joy of holding his sweetheart in his arms. But at his friend's words, he faced about, and his face grew stern. By rights, we ought to chuck him back into his own tub and let him go to the devil, he said savagely, doubling his fists and turning swiftly. No, no, Dick, remonstrated Dorothy, seizing his arm. He treated us very well and saved my life once. Anyway, you mustn't kill him. No, I suppose not, grudgingly assented her lover, and I won't either unless he gives me at least half an excuse. "'We might iron him to a post,' suggested Crane doubtfully. "'I think there's a better way,' replied Seaton. "'He may be able to work his way. His brain hits on all twelve, and he's strong as a bull. Our chance of getting back isn't a certainty, as you know.' He turned to Duquesne. "'I've heard that your word is good. It has never been broken.' Will you give your word to act as one of the party for the good of us all if we don't iron you? Yes, until we get back to Earth, provided, of course, that I reserve the right to escape at any time between now and then, if I wish to, and can do so without injuring the vessel or any member of the party in any way. Agreed. Let's get busy. We're altogether too close to that dud there to suit me. Sit tight, everybody. We're on our way, he cried as he turned to the board, applied one notch of power, and shut off the attractor. The Skylark slowed down a trifle in its mad fall. The other vessel continued on its way, a helpless hulk manned by a corpse, falling to destruction upon the bleak wastes of a desert world. "'Hold on,' said Duquesne sharply. "'Your power is the same as mine was, in proportion to your mass, isn't it?' "'Yes.' Then our goose is cooked. I couldn't pull away from it with everything I had. Couldn't even swing out enough to make an orbit, either hyperbolic or elliptical, around it. With the reserve bar, you will be able to make an orbit, but you can't get away from it. Thanks for the dope. That saves our wasting some effort. Our power plant can be doubled up in emergencies, thanks to Martin's cautious old bean. We'll simply double her up and go away from here. There is one thing we didn't consider quite enough, said Crane, thoughtfully. I started to faint back there, 
before the full power of even one motor was in use. With the motor doubled, each of us will be held down by a force of many tons. We would all be helpless. Yes, added Dorothy, with foreboding in her eyes. We were all unconscious on the way out, except for Dr. Duquesne. Well, then, Blackie and I, as the huskiest members of the party, will give her the juice until only one of us is left with his eyes open. If that isn't enough to pull us clear, we'll have to give her the whole works and let her ramble by herself after we all go out. How about it, Blackie? Unconsciously falling into the old bureau nickname. Do you think we can make it stop at unconsciousness with double power on? Duquesne studied the two girls carefully. With oxygen in the helmets instead of air, we all may be able to stand it. These special cushions keep the body from flattening out, as it normally would under such a pressure. The unconsciousness is simply a suffocation caused by the lateral muscles being unable to lift the ribs. In other words, the air pumps aren't strong enough for the added work put upon them. At least we stand a chance this way. We may live through the pressure while we are pulling away, and we certainly shall die if we don't pull away. After a brief consultation, the men set to work with furious haste. While Crane placed extra bars in each of the motors, and Duquesne made careful observations upon the apparent size of the now plainly visible world toward which they were being drawn so irresistibly, Seaton connected the helmets with the air and oxygen tank through a valve upon the board, by means of which he could change at will the oxygen content of the air they breathed. He then placed the strange girl, who seemed dazed by the frightful sensation of their never-ending fall, upon one of the seats, fitted the cumbersome helmet upon her head, strapped her carefully into place, and turned to Dorothy. In an instant they were in each other's arms. He felt her labored breathing and the wild beating of her heart, pressed so closely to his, and he saw the fear of the unknown in the violet depths of her eyes. But she looked at him unflinchingly. Dick, sweetheart, if this is goodbye, he interrupted her with a kiss. It isn't goodbye yet, Dotty mine. This is merely a trial effort to see what we will have to do to get away. Next time will be the time to worry. I'm not worried, really, but in case, you see, I, we. The gray eyes softened and misted over as he pressed his cheek to hers. I understand, sweetheart, he whispered. This is not goodbye, but if we don't pull through, we'll go together. And that is what we both want. As Crane and Duquesne finished their tasks, Seaton fitted his sweetheart's helmet, placed her tenderly upon the seat, buckled the heavy restraining straps about her slender body, and donned his own helmet. He took his place at the main instrument board, Duquesne stationing himself at the other. "'What did you read on it, Blackie?' asked Seaton. Two degrees, one minute, twelve seconds diameter,' replied Duquesne. Altogether too close for comfort. How shall we apply the power? One of us must stay awake, or we'll go on as long as the bars last. You put on one notch, then I'll put on one. We can feel the bus jump with each notch. We'll keep it up until one of us is so far gone that he can't raise the bar. 
The one that raises last will have to let the ship run for thirty minutes or an hour, then cut down his power. Then the other fellow will revive and cut his off for an observation. How's that? All right. They took their places, and Seaton felt the vessel slow down in its horrible fall as Duquesne threw his lever into the first notch. He responded instantly by advancing his own, and notch after notch, the power applied to the ship by the now doubled motor was rapidly increased. The passengers felt their suits envelop them and began to labor for breath. Seaton slowly turned the mixing valve a little with each advance of his lever until pure oxygen flowed through the pipes. The power levers had moved scarcely half of their range, yet minutes now intervened between each advance instead of seconds, as at the start. As each of the two men was determined that he would make the last advance, the duel continued longer than either would have thought possible. Seaton made what he thought his final effort and waited, only to feel, after a few minutes, the upward surge telling him that Duquesne was still able to move his lever. His brain reeled, his arm seemed paralyzed by its own enormous weight, and it felt as though it, the rolling table upon which it rested, and the supporting framework were so immovably welded together that it was impossible to move it even the quarter-inch necessary to operate the ratchet lever. He could not move his body, which was oppressed by a sickening weight. His utmost efforts to breathe forced only a little of the life-giving oxygen into his lungs, which smarted painfully at the touch of the undiluted gas, and he felt that he could not long retain consciousness under such conditions. Nevertheless, he summoned all his strength and advanced the lever one more notch. He stared at the clock face above his head, knowing that if Duquesne could advance his lever again, he would lose consciousness and be beaten. Minute after minute went by, however, and the acceleration of the ship remained constant. Seaton, knowing that he was in sole control of the power plant, fought to retain possession of his faculties, while the hands of the clock told off the interminable minutes. After an eternity of time, an hour had passed, and Seaton attempted to cut down his power, only to find with horror that the long strain had so weakened him that he could not reverse the ratchet. He was still able, however, to give the lever the backward jerk, which disconnected the wires completely, and the safety straps creaked with a sudden stress as half the power instantly shut off. The suddenly released springs tried to hurl five bodies against the ceiling. After a few minutes, Duquesne revived and slowly cut off his power. To the dismay of both men, they were again falling. Duquesne hurried to the lower window to make the observation, remarking, You're a better man than I, Gunga Din. Only because you're so badly bunged up. One more notch would have got my goat, replied Seaton frankly, as he made his way to Dorothy's side. He noticed, as he reached her, that Crane had removed his helmet and was approaching the other girl. By the time Duquesne had finished the observation, the other passengers had completely recovered, apparently none the worse for their experience. "'Did we gain anything?' asked Seaton eagerly. 
I make it two four thirteen. We lost about two minutes of arc. How much power did we have on? A little over half. Thirty-two points out of sixty possible. We're still falling pretty fast. We'll have to put on everything we've got. Since neither of us can put it on, we'll have to rig up an automatic feed. It'll take time, but it's the only way. The automatic control is already there, put in Crane, forestalling Seaton's explanation. The only question is whether we will live through it, and that is not really a question, since certain death is the only alternative. We must do it. We sure must, answered Seaton soberly. Dorothy gravely nodded assent. What do you fellows think of a little plus pressure on the oxygen? asked Seaton. I think it would help a lot. I think it's a good idea, said Duquesne, and Crane added. Four or five inches of water will be about all the pressure we can stand. Any more might burn our lungs too badly. The pressure apparatus was quickly arranged, and the motors filled to capacity with reserve bars, enough to last seventy-two hours. The scientists having decided that they must risk everything on one trial, and put in enough, if possible, to pull them clear out of the influence of this center of attraction, as the time lost in slowing up to change bars might well mean the difference between success and failure. Where they might lie at the end of the wild dash for safety, how they were to retrace their way with their depleted supply of copper, what other dangers of dead star, planet, or sun lay in their path, all these were terrifying questions that had to be ignored. Duquesne was the only member of the party who actually felt any calmness, the quiet of the others expressing their courage in facing fear. Life seemed very sweet and desirable to them, the distant earth a very paradise. Through Dorothy's mind flashed the visions she had built up during long, sweet hours, visions of a long life with Seaton. As she breathed an inaudible prayer, she glanced up and saw Seaton standing beside her, gazing down upon her with his very soul in his eyes. Never would she forget the expression upon his face. Even in that crucial hour, his great love for her overshadowed every other feeling, and no thought of self was in his mind. His care was all for her. There was a long farewell caress. Both knew that it might be goodbye, but both were silent as the violet eyes and the gray looked into each other's depths and conveyed messages far beyond the power of words. Once more he adjusted her helmet and strapped her into place. As Crane had in the meantime cared for the other girl, the men again took their places, and Seaton started the motor, which would automatically advance the speed levers, one notch every five seconds, until the full power of both motors was exerted. As the power was increased, he turned the valve as before, until the helmets were filled with pure oxygen, under a pressure of five inches of water. Margaret Spencer, weakened by her imprisonment, was the first to lose consciousness, and soon afterwards Dorothy felt her senses leave her. A half a minute, in the course of which six spidey surges were felt, as more of the power of the doubled motor was released, and Crane had gone, calmly analyzing his sensations to the last. After a time, 
Duquesne also lapsed into unconsciousness, making no particular effort to avoid it, as he knew that the involuntary muscles would function quite as well without the direction of the will. Satan, although he knew it was useless, fought to keep his senses as long as possible, counting the impulses he felt as the levers were advanced. 32. He felt exactly as he had before, when he had advanced the lever for the last time. 33. A giant hand shut off his breath completely, though he was fighting to his utmost for air. An intolerable weight rested upon his eyeballs, forcing them backward into his head. The universe whirled about him in dizzy circles. Orange and black and green stars flashed before his bursting eyes. 34. The stars became more brilliant and of a more variegated color, and a giant pen dipped in fire was writing equations and mathematical chemical symbols upon his quivering brain. He joined the circling universe, which he had hitherto kept away from him by main strength, and whirled about his own body, tracing a logarithmic spiral with infinite velocity, leaving his body an infinite distance behind. 35. And the stars in the fiery pen exploded into a wild corsication of searing, blinding light, and he plunged from his spiral into a black abyss. In spite of the terrific stress put upon the machine, every part functioned perfectly, and soon after Seton had lost consciousness, the vessel began to draw away from the sinister globe. Slowly at first, faster and faster, as more and more of the almost unlimited power of the mighty motor was released. Soon the levers were out to the last notch, and the machine was exerting its maximum effort. One hour, and an observer upon the Skylark would have seen that the apparent size of the massive unknown world was rapidly decreasing. Twenty hours, and it was so far away as to be invisible, though its effect was still great. Forty hours, and the effect was slight. Sixty hours, and the Skylark was out of the range of the slightest measurable force of the monster it had left. Hurtled onward, by the inconceivable power of the unleashed copper demon in its center, the Skylark flew through the infinite reaches of interstellar space with an unthinkable, almost incalculable velocity, beside which the velocity of light was of that of a snail to that of a rifle bullet, a velocity augmented every second by a quantity almost double that of light itself. End of chapter 10「Through Space into the Carboniferous » Seaton opened his eyes and gazed about him wonderingly. Only half-conscious, bruised and sore in every part of his body, he could not at first realize what had happened. Instinctively drawing a deep breath, he coughed and choked as the undiluted oxygen filled his lungs, bringing with it a complete understanding of the situation. Knowing from the lack of any apparent motion that the power had been sufficient to pull the car away from that fatal globe, his first thought was for Dorothy, and he tore off his helmet and turned toward her. The force of even that slight movement 
wafted him gently into the air, where he hung suspended several minutes before his struggles enabled him to clutch a post and draw himself down to the floor. A quick glance around informed him that Dorothy, as well as the others, was still unconscious. Making his way rapidly to her, he placed her face downward upon the floor and began artificial respiration. Very soon he was rewarded by the coughing he had longed to hear. He tore off her helmet and clasped her to his breast in an agony of relief, while she sobbed convulsively upon his shoulder. The first ecstasy of their greeting over, Dorothy started guiltily. "'Oh, Dick!' she exclaimed. "'How about Peggy? You must see how she is.' "'Never mind,' answered Crane's voice cheerily. "'She is coming, too, nicely.' Glancing around quickly, they saw that Crane had already revived the stranger, and that Duquesne was not in sight. Dorothy blushed, the vivid wave of color rising to her glorious hair, and hastily disengaged her arms from around her lover's neck, drawing away from him. Seaton, also blushing, dropped his arms, and Dorothy floated away from him, frantically clutching at a brace just beyond reach. "'Pull me down, Dick,' she called, laughing gaily. Seaton, seizing her instinctively, neglected his own anchorage, and they hung in the air together, while Crane and Margaret, each holding a strap, laughed with unrestrained merriment. "'Tweet, tweet, I'm a canary,' chuckled Seaton. "'Throw us a rope.' "'A dicky bird, you mean,' interposed Dorothy. "'I knew that you were a sly-of-the-hand expert, Dick, but I did not know that levitation was one of your specialties,' remarked Crane, with mock gravity. "'That is a peculiar pose you are holding now. What are you doing? Sitting on an imaginary pedestal?' "'I'll be sitting on your neck if you don't get a wiggle on with that rope,' retorted Seaton. But before Crane had time to obey the command, the floating couple had approached close enough to the ceiling so that Seaton, with a slight pressure of his hand against the leather, sent them floating back to the floor, within reach of one of the handrails. Seaton made his way to the power plant, lifted in one of the remaining bars, and applied a little power. The Skylark seemed to jump under them. Then it seemed as though they were back on Earth. Everything had its normal weight once more, as the amount of power applied was just enough to equal the acceleration of gravity. After this fact had been explained, Dorothy turned to Margaret. Now that we are able to act intelligently, the party should be introduced to each other. Peggy, this is Dr. Dick Seaton, and this is Mr. Martin Crane. Boys, this is Miss Margaret Spencer, a dear friend of mine. These are the boys I have told you so much about, Peggy. Dicky knows all about atoms and things. He found out how to make the Skylark go. Martin, who is quite a wonderful inventor, made the engines and things for it. I may have heard of Mr. Crane, replied Margaret eagerly. My father was an inventor, and I have heard him speak of a man named Crane who invented a lot of instruments for airplanes. He used to say that the Crane instruments revolutionized flying. I wonder if you are that Mr. Crane. That is rather unjustifiably high praise, Miss Spencer, replied Crane, but as I have been guilty of one or two things along that line, 
I may be the man he meant. Pardon me if I seem to change the subject, put in Seaton, but where's Duquesne? We came to at the same time, and he went into the galley to fix up something to eat. Good for him, exclaimed Dorothy. I'm simply starved to death. I would have been demanding food long ago, but I have so many aches and pains that I didn't realize how hungry I was until you mentioned it. Come on, Peggy. I know where our room is. Let's go powder our noses while these bewhiskered gentlemen reap their beards. Did you bring along any of my clothes, Dick, or did you forget them in the excitement? I didn't think anything about clothes, but Martin did. You'll find your whole wardrobe in your room. I'm with you, Dot, on that eating proposition. I'm hungry enough to eat the jam off the door. After the girls had gone, Seaton and Crane went into their rooms, where they exercised vigorously to restore the circulation to their numbed bodies, shaved, bathed, and returned to the salon, feeling like new men. They found the girls already there, seated at one of the windows. "'Hail and greetings!' cried Dorothy at the sight of them. "'I hardly recognize you without your whiskers. "'Do hurry over here and look out this perfectly wonderful window. "'Did you ever in your born days see anything like this sight? "'Now that I'm not scared pea-green, I can enjoy it thoroughly.' The two men joined the girls and peered out into space through the window, which was completely invisible, so clear was the glass. As the four heads bent so close together, an awed silence fell upon the little group, for the blackness of the interstellar void was not the dark of an earthly night, but the absolute black of the absence of all light, beside which the black of platinum dust is pale and gray, and laid upon this velvet were the jewel stars. They were not the twinkling, scintillating beauties of the earthy sky, but minute points, so small as to seem dimensionless, yet of dazzling brilliance. Without the interference of the air, their rays met the eyes steadily, and much of the effect of comparative distance was lost. All seemed nearer, and there was no hint of familiarity in their arrangement. Like gems thrown upon darkness, they shone in multicolored beauty upon the daring wanderers, who stood in their car as easily as though they were upon their planet Earth, and gazed upon a sight never before seen by eye of man, nor pictured in his imaginings. Through the days of their wonder, a thought smote Seaton like a blow from a fist. His eyes leaped to the instrument board, and he exclaimed, Look there, Mart, we're heading almost directly away from the Earth and we must be making billions of miles per second. After we lost consciousness, the attraction of that big dud back there would swing us around, of course, but the bar should have stayed pointed somewhere near the Earth as I left it. Do you suppose it could have shifted the gyroscopes? It not only could have, it did, replied Crane, turning the bar until it again pointed parallel with the object compass which bore upon the Earth. Look at the board. The angle has been changed through nearly half a circumference. We couldn't carry gyroscopes heavy enough to counteract that force. But they were heavier there. Oh, sure, you're right. It's mass, not weight, that counts. 
but we sure are in one fine large jam now. Instead of being halfway back to Earth, we're... where are we, anyway? They made a reading on an object compass focused upon the Earth. Seaton's face lengthened as seconds passed. When it had come to rest, both men calculated the distance. What do you make it, Mart? I'm afraid to tell you my result. Forty-six point twenty-seven light centuries, replied Crane calmly. Right? Right. And the time was 11.32 p.m. of Thursday by the chronometer there. We'll time it again after a while and see how fast we're traveling. It's a good thing you built the ship's chronometers to stand any kind of stress. My watch is a total loss. Yours is, too. All our watches must be broken. We will have to repair them as soon as we get time. Well, let's eat next. No human being can stand my aching void much longer. How about you, Dot? Yes, for cat's sakes, let's get busy, she mimicked him gaily. Dr. Duquesne had dinner ready for ages, and were all dying by inches of hunger. The wanderers, battered, bruised, and sore, seated themselves at a folding table. Seaton, keeping a watchful eye upon the bar and upon the course, while enjoying Dorothy's presence to the full. Crane and Margaret talked easily, but at intervals. Save when directly addressed, Duquesne maintained silence, not the silence of one who knows himself to be an intruder, but the silence of perfect self-sufficiency. The meal over, the girls washed the dishes and busied themselves in the galley. Seaton and Crane made another observation upon the earth, requesting Duquesne to stay out of the engine room, as they called the partially enclosed space surrounding the main instrument board, where located the object compass and the mechanism controlling the attractor, about which Duquesne knew nothing. As they rejoined Duquesne in the main compartment, Seaton said, Duquesne, we're nearly 5,000 light-years away from the Earth, and getting farther at the rate of about one light-year per minute. I suppose that it would be poor technique to ask how you know. It would, very poor. Our figures are right. The difficulty is that we have only four bars left, enough to stop us and a little to spare, but not nearly enough to get back with, even if we could take a chance on drifting straight that far without being swung off, which, of course, is impossible. That means we must land somewhere and dig some copper, then. Exactly. The first thing to do is find a place to land. Seaton picked out a distant star in their course and observed it through the spectroscope. Since it was found to contain copper in notable amounts, all agreed that its planets probably also contained copper. Don't know whether we can stop that soon or not, remarked Seaton, as he set the levers, but we may as well have something to shoot at. We'd better take our regular twelve-hour tricks, hadn't we, Mart? It's a wonder we got as far as this without striking another snag. I'll take the first trick at the board. Beat it to bed. Not so fast, Dick, argued Crane, as Seaton turned toward the engine room. It's my turn. Flip a nickel, suggested Seaton. Heads, I get it. Crane flipped a coin. Heads it was 
and the worn-out party went to their rooms, all save Dorothy, who lingered after the others to bid her lover a more intimate good night. Seated beside him, his arm around her and her head upon his shoulder, Dorothy exclaimed, Oh, Dicky, Dicky, it is wonderful to be with you again. I've lived as many years in the last week as we have covered miles. Seaton kissed her with ardor, then turned her fair face up to his and gazed hungrily at every feature. It sure was awful until we found you, sweetheart girl. Those two days at Wilson's were the worst and the longest I ever put in. I could have wrung Martin's cautious old neck. But isn't he a whiz at preparing for trouble? We sure owe him a lot, little dimpled lady. Dorothy was silent for a moment. Then a smile quirked at one corner of her mouth, and a dimple appeared. Seaton promptly kissed it, whereupon it deepened audaciously. "'What are you thinking about, mischief?' he asked. "'Only how Martin is going to be paid what we owe him,' she answered teasingly. "'Don't let the debt worry you any.' "'Spill the news, Reddy,' he commanded, as his arm tightened about her. She stuck out a tiny tip of her red tongue at him. "'Don't let Peggy find out he's a millionaire.' "'Why not?' he asked wonderingly. Then he saw her point and laughed. "'You little matchmaker.' "'I don't care. Laugh if you want to. Martin's as nice a man as I know, and Peggy's a real darling. Don't you let slip a word about Martin's money, that's all.' "'She wouldn't think any less of him, would she?' Dick, sometimes you are absolutely dumb. It would spoil everything. If she knew he was a millionaire, she would be scared to death, not of him, of course, but because she would think that he would think that she was chasing him. And then, of course, he would think that she was. See? As it is, she acts perfectly natural, and so does he. Didn't you notice that while we were eating, they talked together for at least fifteen minutes about her father's invention and the way they stole the plans and one thing and another. I don't believe he has talked that much to any girl except me the last five years. And he wouldn't talk to me until he knew that I couldn't see any man except you. Much as we like Martin, we've got to admit that about him. He's been chased so much that he's wild. If any other girl he knows had talked to him that long, he would have been off to the North Pole or somewhere the next morning, and the best part of it is that he didn't think anything of it. You think she's domesticating the wild man? Now, Dick, don't be foolish. You know what I mean. Martin is a perfect dear, but if she knew that he is the M. Reynolds Crane, everything would be ruined. You know yourself how horribly hard it is to get through his shell to the real Martin underneath. He is lonely and miserable inside, I know, and the right kind of girl, one that would treat him right, would make life heaven for him, and herself, too. Yes, and the wrong kind would make it. She would, interrupted Dorothy hastily, but Peggy's the right kind. Wouldn't it be fine to have Martin and Peggy as happy, almost, as you and I are? All right, girlie, I'm with you, he answered, embracing her as though he intended never to let her go. But you'd better go get some sleep. You're all in. 
Considerably later, when Dorothy had finally gone, Seaton settled himself for the long vigil. Promptly at the end of the twelve hours, Crane appeared, alert of eye and of bearing. "'You look fresh as a daisy, Mart. Feeling fit?' "'Fit as the proverbial fiddle. I could not have slept any better or longer if I had a week off. Seven hours and a half is a luxury, you know.' "'All wrong, old top. I need eight every night, and I'm going to take about ten this time.' Go to it. Twelve, if you like. You've earned it. Seaton stumbled to his room and slept as though in a trance for ten hours. Rising, he took his regular morning exercise and went into the salon. All save Martin were there, but he had eyes only for his sweetheart, who was radiantly beautiful in a dress of deep bronze brown. Good morning, Dick, she hailed him joyously. You woke up just in time. We are all starving again, and we're just going to eat without you. Good morning, everybody. I would like to eat with you, Dottie, but I've got to relieve Martin. How'd it be for you to bring me breakfast into the engine room and share my solitude, and let Crane eat with the others? Fine. That's once you've had a good idea, if you never have another. After the meal, Duquesne, who abhorred idleness, with all his vigorous nature, took the watches of the party and went upstairs to the shop, which was a completely equipped mechanical laboratory, to repair them. Seaton stayed at the board, where Dorothy joined him as a matter of course. Crane and Margaret sat down at one of the windows. She told him her story, frankly and full, shuddering with horror, as she recalled the awful helpless fall during which Perkins had met his end. "'Dick and I have a heavy score to settle with that steel crowd and with Duquesne,' Crane said slowly. "'We have no evidence that will hold in law, but some day Duquesne will overreach himself. We could convict him of abduction now, but the penalty for that is too mild for what he has done. Perkins's death was not murder, then?' "'Oh, no. It was purely self-defense.' Perkins would have killed him, if he could, and he really deserved it. Perkins was a perfect fiend. The doctor, as they call him, is no better, although entirely different. He is so utterly heartless and ruthless, so cold and scientific. Do you know him very well? We know all that about him and more, and yet Dorothy said he saved her life. He did, from Perkins, but I still think it was because he didn't want Perkins meddling in his affairs. He seems to me to be the very incarnation of a fixed purpose to advance himself in the world. That expresses my thoughts exactly, but he slips occasionally, as in this instance, and he will again. He will have to walk very carefully while he was with us. Nothing would please Dick better than an excuse for killing him, and I must admit that I feel very much the same way. Yes, all of us do, and the way he acts proves what a machine he is. He knows just exactly how far to go, and never goes beyond it. They felt the Skylark lurch slightly. Oh, Mart, called Seaton, going to pass that star we were headed for, too fast to stop. I'm giving it a wide berth and picking out another one. There's a big planet a few million miles off in line with the main door, 
and another one almost dead ahead. That is, straight down. We sure are traveling. Look at that sun flit by. They saw the two planets, one like a small moon, the other like a large star, and saw the strange sun increase rapidly in size as the Skylark flew on at such a pace that any earthly distance would have been covered as soon as it was begun. So appalling was their velocity that their ship was bathed in the light of the sun for only a short time, then was again surrounded by the indescribable darkness. Their seventy-two-hour flight without a pilot had seemed a miracle. Now it seemed entirely possible that they might fly in a straight line for weeks without encountering any obstacle. So vast was the emptiness in comparison with the points of light that punctuated it. Now and then they passed so close to a star that it apparently moved rapidly, but for the most part the silent sentinels stood like distant mountain peaks to the travelers in an express train in the same position for many minutes. Awed by the immensity of the universe, the two at the window were silent, not with the silence of embarrassment, but with that of two friends in the presence of something beyond the reach of words. As they stared out into the infinity, each felt as never before the pitiful smallness of even our whole solar system and the utter insignificance of human beings and their works. Silently, their minds reached out to each other in mutual understanding. Unconsciously, Margaret half-shuddered and moved closer to her companion, the movement attracting his attention, but not her own. A tender expression came into Crane's steady blue eyes as he looked down at the beautiful young woman by his side. For beautiful she undoubtedly was. Untroubled rest and plentiful food had erased the marks of her imprisonment. Dorothy's deep, manifestly unassumed faith in the ability of Seaton and Crane to bring them safely back to Earth had quieted her fears. And a complete costume of Dorothy's simple but well-cut clothes, which fitted her perfectly and in which she looked her best and knew it, had completely restored her self-possession. He quickly glanced away and again gazed at the stars, but now, in addition to the wonders of space, he saw masses of wavy black hair, high-piled upon a queenly head, deep, down, brown eyes, half-veiled by long black lashes, sweet, sensitive lips, a firmly rounded but dimpled chin, and a perfectly formed young body. After a time she drew a deep, tremulous breath. As he turned, her eyes met his. In their shadowy depth, still troubled by the mysteries of the unknowable, he read her very soul, the soul of a real woman. I had hoped, said Margaret slowly, to take a long flight above the clouds, but anything like this never entered my mind. How unbelievably great it is! So much vaster than any perception we could get upon earth. It seems strange that we were ever awed by the sea or the mountains, and yet... She paused, with her lip caught under two white teeth, then went on hesitantly. Doesn't it seem to you, Mr. Crane, that there is something in man as great as all this? Otherwise, Dorothy and I could not be sailing here in a wonder like the lark, 
which you and Dick Seaton have made. Since from the first, Dorothy had timed her waking hours with those of Seaton, waiting upon him, preparing his meals, and lightening the long hours of his vigils at the board, Margaret took it upon herself to do the same thing for Crane. But often they assembled in the engine room, and there was much fun and laughter, as well as serious talk among the four. Margaret was quickly accepted as a friend, and proved a delightful companion. Her wavy jet-black hair, the only color in the world that could hold its own with Dorothy's auburn glory, framed features self-reliant and strong, yet of womanly softness, and in this genial atmosphere her quick tongue had a delicate wit and a facility of expression that delighted all three. Dorothy, after the manner of Southern women, became the hostess of this odd party, as she styled it, and unconsciously adopted the attitude of a lady in her own home. Early in the flight, Crane suggested that they should take notes upon the systems of stars through which they were passing. I know very little of astronomy, he said to Seaton, but with our telescope, spectroscope, and other instruments, we should be able to take some data that will be of interest to astronomers. Possibly, Miss Spencer would be willing to help us. Sure, Seaton returned readily. We'd be idiots to let a chance like this slide. Go to it. Margaret was delighted at the opportunity to help. Taking notes is the best thing I do, she cried, and called for a pad and pencil. Stationed at the window, they fell to work in earnest. For several hours, Crane took observations, calculated distances, and dictated notes to Margaret. The stars are wonderfully different, she exclaimed to him once. That planet, I'm sure, has strange and lovely life upon it. See how its colors differ from most of the others we have seen so near. It is rosy and soft, like a home fire. I'm sure its people are happy. They fell into a long discussion, laughing a little at their fancies. Were these multitudes of worlds peopled as the earth? Could it be that only upon earth had occurred the right combination for the generation of life, so that the rest of the universe was unpeopled? It is unthinkable that they are all uninhabited, mused Crane. There must be life. The beings may not exist in any form with which we are familiar. They may well be filling some purpose in ways so different from ours that we should be unable to understand them at all. Margaret's eyes widened in startled apprehension, but in a moment she shook herself and laughed. But there's no reason to suppose they would be awful, she remarked, and turned with renewed interest to the window. The days went by, and the Skylark passed one solar system after another, with a velocity so great that it was impossible to land upon any planet. Margaret's association with Crane begun as a duty, soon became an intense pleasure for them both. Taking notes, or seated at the board, in companionable conversation or sympathetic silence, they compressed into a few days more real companionship than is ordinarily enjoyed in months. Oftener and oftener, as time went on, Crane found the vision of his dream home floating in his mind as he steered the Skylark in her meteorotic flight 
or as he strapped himself into his narrow bed. Now, however, the central figure of the vision, instead of being an indistinct blur, was clear and sharply defined. As for her part, more and more was Margaret drawn to the quiet and unassuming but utterly dependable and steadfast young inventor, with his wide knowledge and his keen, incisive mind. Sometimes, when far from any star, the pilot would desert his post and join the others at meals. Upon one such occasion, Seaton asked, "'How's the book on astronomy, O learned ones?' "'It will be as interesting as Egyptian hieroglyphics,' Margaret replied, as she opened her notebook and showed him pages of figures and symbols. "'May I see it, Miss Spencer?' asked Duquesne from across the small table, extending his hand. She looked at him, hot hostility in her brown eyes, and he dropped his hand. "'I beg your pardon,' he said, with amused irony. After the meal, Seaton and Crane held a short consultation, and the former called the girls, asking them to join them in the council of war. There was a moment's silence before Crane said diffidently, "'We have been talking about Duquesne, Miss Spencer, trying to decide a very important problem.' Seaton smiled in spite of himself as the color again deepened in Margaret's face, and Dorothy laughed outright. "'Talk about a red-headed temper. Your hair must be dyed, Peggy.' "'I know I acted like a naughty child,' Margaret said ruefully, "'but he makes me perfectly furious and scares me at the same time. A few more remarks like that, I'd beg your pardon of his, and I wouldn't have a thought left in my head.' Seaton, who had opened his mouth, shut it ludicrously, without saying a word, and Margaret gave him a startled glance. "'Now I have it,' she exclaimed. "'I'm not afraid of him, boys, really. What do you want me to do?' Seaton plunged in. "'What we've been trying to get up enough nerve to say is that he'd be a good man on the astronomy job,' and Crane added quickly, "'He undoubtedly knows more about it than I do, and it would be a pity,' to lose the chance of using him. Besides, Dick and I think it rather dangerous to leave him so much time to himself in which to work up a plan against us. He's cooking one right now. I'll bet a hat, Seaton put in, and Crane added. If you are sure that you have no objections, Miss Spencer, we might go below, where we can have it dark, and all three of us see what we can make of the stargazing. We are really losing an unusual opportunity. Margaret hid gallantly any reluctance she might have felt. I wouldn't deserve to be here if I can't work with the doctor and hate him at the same time. Good for you, Peg. You're a regular fellow, Seaton exclaimed. You're a trump. Finally, the enormous velocity of the cruiser was sufficiently reduced to affect the landing. A copper-bearing sun was located, and a course was laid toward its nearest planet. As the vessel approached its goal, a deep undercurrent of excitement kept all the passengers feverishly occupied. They watched the distant globe grow larger, glowing through its atmosphere more and more clearly as a great disk of white light, its outline softened by the air about it. Two satellites were close beside it. 
Its sun, a great blazing orb, a little nearer than the planet, looked so great and so hot that Margaret became uneasy. Isn't it dangerous to get so close, Dick? We might burn up, mightn't we? Not without an atmosphere, he laughed. Oh, murmured the girl apologetically, I might have known that. Dropping rapidly to the atmosphere of the planet, they measured its density and analyzed it in apparatus installed for that purpose, finding that its composition was very similar to Earth's air, and that its pressure was not great enough to be uncomfortable. Within 1,000 feet of the surface, Seaton weighed a five-pound weight upon a spring balance, finding that it weighed five and a half pounds, thus ascertaining that the planet was either somewhat larger than Earth or more dense. The ground was almost hidden by rank growth of vegetation, but here and there appeared glade-like openings. Seaton glanced at the faces about him. Tense interest marked them all. Dorothy's cheeks were flushed, her eyes shone. She looked at him with awe and pride. Strange world, Dorothy, he said gravely. You are not afraid? Not with you, she answered. I am only thrilled with wonder. Columbus at San Salvador, said Margaret, her dark eyes paying their tribute of admiration. A dark flush mounted swiftly into Seaton's brown face, and he sought to throw most of the burden upon Crane, but catching upon his face also a look of praise, almost of tenderness, he quickly turned to the controls. Man the boats, he ordered an imaginary crew, and the Skylark descended rapidly. Landing upon one of the open spaces, they found the ground solid and stepped out. What had appeared to be a glade was in reality a rock, or rather, a ledge of apparently solid metal, with scarcely a loose fragment to be seen. At one end of the ledge rose a giant tree, wonderfully symmetrical, but of a peculiar form. Its branches were longer at the top than at the bottom, and it possessed broad, dark green leaves, long thorns, and odd, flexible, shoot-like tendrils. It stood as an outpost of the dense vegetation beyond. Totally unlike the forests of earth were those fern-like trees, towering two hundred feet into the air. They were of an intensely vivid green and stood motionless in the still, hot air of noonday. Not a sign of animal life was to be seen. The whole landscape seemed asleep. The five strangers stood near their vessel, conversing in low tones, and enjoying the sensation of solid ground beneath their feet. After a few minutes, Duquesne remarked, This is undoubtedly a newer planet than ours. I should say that it was in the Carboniferous Age. Aren't those trees like those in the coal measures, Seaton? True as time, Blackie. There probably won't be a human race here for ages, unless we bring out some colonists. Seaton kicked at one of the loose lumps of metal questioningly with his heavy shoe, finding that it was as immovable as though it were part of the ledge. Bending over, he found that it required all his great strength to lift it, and he stared at it with an expression of surprise, which turned to amazement as he peered closer. Duquesne, look at this. Duquesne studied the metal. 
and was shaken out of his habitual taciturnity. Platinum, by all the gods. We'll grab some of this while the grabbing's good, announced Seaton, and the few visible lumps were rolled into the car. If we had a pickaxe, we could chop some more off one of those sharp ledges down there. There's an axe in the shop, replied Duquesne. I'll go get it. Go ahead. I'll soon be with you. Keep close together, warned Crane, as the four moved slowly down the slope. This is none too safe, Dick. No, it isn't, Mart. But we've got to see whether we can't find some copper, and I would like to get some more of this stuff, too. I don't think it's platinum. I believe that it's X. As they reached the broken projections, Margaret glanced back over her shoulder and screamed. The others saw her face was white and her eyes wide with horror, and Seaton instinctively drew his pistol as he whirled about, only to check his finger on the trigger and lower his hand. Nothing but explosive bullets, he growled in disgust, and in helpless silence the four watched an unspeakably hideous monster slowly appear from behind the skylark, its four huge, squat legs supported a body at least a hundred feet long, pursy and ungainly, at the extremity of a long and sinuous neck, a comparatively small head seemed composed entirely of a cavernous mouth armed with row upon row of carnivorous teeth. Dorothy gasped with terror, and both girls shrank closer to the men, who maintained a baffled silence as the huge beast passed his revolting head along the hull of the vessel. I dare not shoot, Martin, Seaton whispered. It would wreck the bus. Have you got any solid bullets? No, we must hide behind these small ledges until it goes away, answered Crane, his eyes upon Margaret's colorless face. You two hide behind that one. We'll take this one. Well, it's nothing to worry about anyway. We can kill him as soon as he gets far enough away from the boat, said Seaton as, with Dorothy clinging to him, he dropped behind one of the ledges. Margaret, her staring eyes fixed upon the monster, remained standing until Crane touched her gently and drew her down beside him. "'He will go away soon,' his even voice assured her. "'We are in no danger.' In spite of their predicament, a feeling of happiness flowed through Crane's whole being as he crouched beside the wall of metal with one arm protectingly around Margaret, and he longed to protect her through life as he was protecting her then. Accustomed as he was to dangerous situations, he felt no fear. He felt only a great tenderness for the girl by his side, who had ceased trembling, but was still staring wide-eyed at the monster through a crevice. "'Scared, Peggy?' he whispered. "'Not now, Martin.' but if you weren't here, I would die of fright. At this reply, his arm tightened involuntarily, but he forced it to relax. It will not be long, he promised himself silently, until she is back at home among her friends, and then... There came the crack of a rifle from the Skylark. There was an awful roar from the dinosaur, which was quickly silenced by a stream of machine-gun bullets. Blackie's on the job. Let's go, cried Seaton, as they raced up the slope. Making a detour, 
To avoid the writhing and mutilated mass, they plunged through the opening door. Duquesne shut it behind them, and in overwhelming relief, the adventurers huddled together, as from the wilderness without, there arose an appalling tumult. The scene so quiet a few minutes before was instantly changed. The trees, the swamp, and the air seemed filled with monsters so hideous as to stagger the imagination. Winged lizards of prodigious size hurtled through the air, plunging to death against the armored hull. Indescribable flying monsters with feathers like birds, but with fangs of tigers, attacked viciously. Dorothy screamed and started back as a scorpion-like thing with a body ten feet in length leaped at the window in front of her, its terrible sting spraying the glass with venom. As it fell to the ground, a huge spider, if an eight-legged creature with spines instead of hair, many faceted eyes, and a bloated globular body weighing hundreds of pounds, may be called a spider, leaped upon it, and mighty mandibles against poisonous sting, the furious battle raged. Several twelve-foot cockroaches climbed nimbly across the fallen timber of the morass and began feeding voraciously upon the body of the dead dinosaur, only to be driven away by another animal, which all three recognized instantly as the king of all prehistoric creatures, the saber-toothed tiger. This newcomer, a tawny beast towering fifteen feet at the shoulder, had a mouth disproportionate even to his great size, a mouth armed with four great tiger teeth more than three feet in length. He had barely begun his meal, however, when he was challenged by another nightmare, a something apparently halfway between a dinosaur and a crocodile. At the first note, the tiger charged, clawing, striking, rendering each other with their terrible teeth. A veritable avalanche of bloodthirsty rage, the combatants stormed up and down the little island. But the fighters were rudely interrupted, and the earthly visitors discovered in this primitive world it was not only animal life that was dangerous. The great trees standing on the farther edge of the island suddenly bent over lashing out like a snake, and grasping both. It transfixed them with the terrible thorns, which were now seemed to be armed with needle points and to possess barbs like fish hooks. It ripped at them with the long branches, which were veritable spears. The broad leaves, armed with revolting sucking discs, closed about the two animals, while the long, slender twigs, each of which was now seen to have an eye at its extremity, waved about, watching each movement of the captives from a safe distance. If the struggle between the two animals had been awful, this was titanic. The air was torn by the roars of the reptile, the screams of the great cat, and the shriek of the tree. The very ground rocked with the ferocity of the conflict. There could be but one result. Soon the tree, having absorbed the two gladiators, resumed its upright position in all its beauty. The members of the little group stared at each other, sick at heart. This is no place to start a copper mine. I think we'd better beat it, remarked Seaton presently, wiping drops of perspiration from his forehead. I think so, acquiesced Crane. We found air and earth-like conditions here 
we probably will elsewhere. Are you all right, Dottie? asked Seaton. All right, Dicky, she replied, the color flowing back into her cheeks. It scared me stiff, and I think I have a lot of white hairs right now, but I wouldn't have missed it for anything. She paused an instant and continued. Dick, there must be a queer streak of brutality in me, but would you mind blowing up that frightful tree? I wouldn't mind its nature if it were ugly, but look at it. It's so deceptively beautiful. You wouldn't think that it had the disposition of a fiend, would you? A general laugh relieved at the nervous tension, and Seaton stepped impulsively toward Duquesne with his hand outstretched. You squared your account, Blackie. Say the word, and the war's all off. Duquesne ignored the hand and glanced coldly at the group of eager, friendly faces. Don't be sentimental, he remarked evenly, as he turned away to his room. The emotional scenes pain me. I gave my word to act as one of the party. Well, may I be kicked to death by little red spiders, exclaimed Seaton, dumbfounded, as the other disappeared. He ain't a man, he's a fish. He's a machine, I always thought so, and now I know it, stated Margaret, as the others nodded agreement. Well, we'll sure pull his cork as soon as we get back, snapped Seaton. He asked for it, and we'll give him both barrels. I know I acted like a fool out there, Margaret apologized, flushing hotly and looking at Crane. I don't know what made me act so stupid. I used to have a little nerve. You are a regular brick, Peg, Seaton returned instantly. Both of you girls are all to the good, the right kind to have along in ticklish places. Crane held out his steady hand and took Margaret's in a warm clasp. For a girl in your weakened condition, you are wonderful. You have no reason to reproach yourself. Tears filled the dark eyes, but were held back bravely as she held her head erect and returned the pressure of his hand. Just so you don't leave me behind next time, she returned lightly, and the last word concerning the incident had been said. Seaton applied the power, and soon they were approaching another planet, which was surrounded by a dense fog. Descending slowly, they found it to be a mass of boiling hot steam and rank vapors under enormous pressure. The next planet they found to have a clear atmosphere, but the ground had a peculiar barren look, and analysis of the gaseous envelope proved it to be composed almost entirely of chlorine. No life of an earthly type could be possible upon such a world, and a search for copper, even with suits and helmets, would probably be fruitless, if not impossible. Well, remarked Seaton, as they were again in space, we've got enough copper to visit several more worlds, several more solar systems if necessary, but there's a nice, hopeful-looking planet right in front of us. It may be the one we're looking for. Arriving in the belt of atmosphere, they tested it as before and found it satisfactory. End of chapter 11